Hi, everyone. This CoreM episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes. So click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro. Hi, everyone. Cindy Finn here. Welcome back to another episode of Who Beats, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real world cases alongside experienced clinicians. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Zhang Huang. Hello, all. It's been a few months since our last episode. It's good to be back.、Mm. Without further ado, let's hear the case from one of our colleagues here at Core IM, Salon Kalaher. Our patient is a 29-year-old man whose chief complaints are cough, abdominal pain, and fever. His illness began with the onset of a cough six weeks before his admission to the hospital. The cough was non-productive and associated with chest pressure and dyspnea, but seems unrelated to exertion. Three weeks later, he also developed a dull, nagging left-sided abdominal pain. He has no associated nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, but he did notice a whitish streak in his stool a few days earlier. A detail he could not elaborate on much further. His fevers began the following week. He recalls that he ate raw tuna and other fish from a local store about two weeks prior to the onset of his illness. Otherwise, he does not remember any unusual ingestions recently. Around the time his illness began, he had traveled to Taiwan, but he cannot recall precisely whether his cough began shortly before or shortly after his arrival there. He returned to the U.S. one week before admission. His travel history was also notable for trips to France, Hong Kong, and Canada earlier in the year. He has no known medical, surgical, or family history. He is sexually active, monogamous. He lives in Queens, New York, with his wife. They keep two adult cats at home. He has no other contact with animals, domestic or wild. His only medication is Percocet, prescribed when he visited an urgent care for these symptoms one week prior to admission. So I know this is not a lot of information to go on, but while you take a second to think about our patient, I'll use this chance to introduce our expert discussion today. Please welcome Dr. Anand Viswanathan, a fellow hospitalist at NYU. Every time I have a question in the office, whether it's "What do you think I should do with this post-op fever?" or "How do I fix this stupid computer?", I run to Dr. V for help. I see that it's a 29-year-old for six weeks of dry cough, three weeks of abdominal pain, and two weeks of fever. And of course, you think TB just right off the bat because that's what you do with dry cough and fever. But it seems to be there's a subacute process just from the chief complaint itself. My perspective is as an inpatient hospitalist, so patients are coming in. You know, this guy has been dealing with a lot of things. Two weeks of fever, I can understand not wanting to come to a, like a hospital per se for the dry cough, but there was something that you know at some point. Why did they come in now? What what really changed in their sort of、uh, presentation? Were things getting worse?、Um, like that's what I would like to sort of what I usually try to elicit from patients. What what has changed now? As best as I could tell, he came to urgent care a week prior to the current admission for abdominal pain and was prescribed some Percocet. He probably represented to the same urgent care when he ran out of the meds, 
This time, lab work was performed, and because of the test results, he was referred to the emergency room.、Mm. And what lab result could have earned him an instant referral to the ER? Well, before we move on to that, I want you to know that Vishwanathan also asked for secantat hemoptysis, B symptoms, bowel pattern characteristic of his abdominal pain, CVA tenderness. If the patient was taking any over-the-counter medications, I answer based on the admission HMP documented to my best ability.、Um, and the answer to a lot of these questions was, well, I don't know. It wasn't available in the chart. At one point, Doctor V asked me if the patient's cats were having diarrhea. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure he was just messing with me because of my general unhelpfulness. No, I'm sure he wasn't trying to be mean. On examination, the patient appears comfortable and generally well, but is febrile to 101.8 and tachycardic to 110. His blood pressure is 120 over 60, his respiratory rate is 16, and he is saturating 96% on room air. He is mildly tender over the left upper quadrant. His exam is otherwise unremarkable. His heart sounds are normal. His lungs are clear. And there is no visible rash or joint effusions. His labs are notable for a white blood cell count of 33, including an absolute eosinophil count of 17, a hemoglobin of 10, and a platelet count of 562. His serum sodium is 132, and glucose is 294. The BUN, serum creatinine, and remainder of his metabolic panel are normal. His chest X-ray is red as clear, and his ECG shows sinus tachycardia. The absolute eosinophil count was seventeen, as in seventeen thousand. Correct, seventeen thousand. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, now that's all the data we're going to get so far. We have a 29-year-old man with a good travel history who eats raw tuna from a supermarket,、um, here with significant leukocytosis and an eosinophil count of 17,000. Listeners, please pause here and think about this patient. What do you think it is? What test do you want to order? When we come back, we'll hear more from our discussant. The next piece of data we have is this wonderful white blood cell count of 33,、um, which to me immediately like sends off all sorts of red flags. Thinking about you know anything from like C diff to、uh, tissue ischemia to basically a leukemoid reaction, so severe infection. Uh, versus malignancy,、uh, those are the things I tend to think of of what's going on.、Um, and then the next real like home hitting thing is this eosinophil count, which you can look at this absolute eosinophils, right? Is this percentage or absolute? Absolute. So that's a thousand seven hundred, or is that seventeen thousand? So this. This, I believe, goes into the area of hyper eosinophilia,、uh, 
um, as opposed to just your standard regular eosinophil. So I think this may le- may push you toward one particular range of diagnoses as opposed to others. Uh, just to preempt any objections here, hypereosinophilia, if you recall, does have a more formal definitions, right? It's at least two measurements, mm-hmm. greater than 1,500, one month apart, right? So in other words, it has to be both severe and sustained. Or you demonstrate extensive eosinophils in tissues on a biopsy. And one step further, he's not saying the patient has hypereosinophilic syndrome, right? That's different from hypereosinophilia. Hypereosinophilic syndrome is hypereosinophilia plus eosinophil-mediated organ damage. So our discussant is using the term loosely here, but his point is that the severity of this patient's eosinophilia, it has some diagnostic meaning to him. You traditionally, I think back in medical school, you think of uh, eosinophilia, you think of the mnemonic uh, NAACP, neoplasia, allergy, atopy, asthma, Churk-Strauss connective tissue diseases, and parasites, right? But with hyperesinophilia, um, the very elevated ones, you can see certain parasites like schisto and strongyloides. You can see Hodgkin's lymphoma because the Hodgkin's generates the IL-5 by the Reed-Sternberg cells. You can have ALL, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And again, for the solid tumors, you can any number of different malignancies both large cell and squamous cell lung cancer, GYN cancers, adenocarcinomas of the stomach, uh, large bowel, and even transitional cell cancer of the bladder. Even associated with hypereosinophilia, there's something known as mastocytosis, where mast cells accumulate in the skin and internal organs. And we can go even like further... Well, our discussion referred to uh, NWACP as a mnemonic for eosinophilia, so I have a perfect excuse to talk mnemonics for a second. Now, the formal definition of a mnemonic is a technique or strategy that assists in the creation, retention, and retrieval of information from memory. Acronyms are the most familiar type of mnemonic but they are not the only type. Say, using hand gestures to quickly determine the axis of an EKG, that's a kinesthetic mnemonic. Um, drawing a picture to incorporate all the causes of splenomegaly would be a visual mnemonic. Rhymes and songs are auditory mnemonics. When I was doing research on this episode, I even came across a poem that was written to help people remember different types of heart blocks. <laughs> a poem? It assists. How many types of heart blocks are there? <laughs> is it a limerick? A Shakespearean sonnet? <laughs> a Homerian epic ballad? <laughs> okay, you got you to gotta show me the poem later. Um, yes, yes. Generally speaking, right, a mnemonic, it just refers to any technique or strategy that assists in the creation and retention and retrieval of information from memory, right? Well, the issue is mnemonics, we're saying, are mental constructs that we use to organize and remember information. Well, doesn't that sound an awful lot like the concept of a diagnostic schema? Yeah, Cindy, I've actually observed a lot of people seem to treat these two concepts interchangeably. And I've had a couple of people come up and ask me directly whether there's any difference at all between the two. And how do you answer them? You know, I've been thinking about this a bit, and it Maybe using an example would be helpful. 
So as Dr. V was saying, for eosinophilia in med school, we learn the acronym NAACP. But these days, when my students ask me how I approach eosinophilia, I instead tell them, I start with the phrase, worms, wheezes, and weird diseases. Uh, so let me just ask you, which of these two is a schema and which is a mnemonic? Or are they both or neither? And, uh, and why? So what do you think, Cindy? Hmm. Let me see. Well, I would argue that worms and wheezes has a layer of meaning that NWACP does not. So if you think about it, NWACP, there's really no reason why neoplasm comes first, even though it's relatively rare, and no reason why adrenal insufficiency is up there with allergy, even though allergy is a thousand times more common. And there's really no reason why an important cause like drug-induced eosinophilia like dress is not mm. there just because there's no D in NWACP. <laughs> well, meanwhile, worms, wheezes, and weird diseases divide the problem space of eosinophilia into three big regions based on statistical likelihood. Mm. Parasites are the most common causes in the developing world. Um, autoimmune and allergy disorders are most common in the developed world. And there's a large and diverse group of rare illnesses to consider after the first two. So to answer your question, I would say both NWACP and worms wheezes are both mnemonics because they both help us remember something about the causes of eosinophilia. But unlike NWACP, worms wheezes is also the start of a proper diagnostic schema. And I would agree with you there, actually. I, I think that meaning is the key difference. And also, just to be careful here, I think I worry that maybe it sounds like we're arguing that schemata are just somehow intrinsically better than mnemonics. And I don't think that's what we're saying at all, right? I think mnemonics are actually quite useful in certain situations, like where you need to recall something very quickly. You know, at a code, your patient's asystolic, what do you do? You shout out the H's and the T's. And in general, nanonics are they're good solutions when you just need to memorize a large amount of new information very quickly. They don't take a lot of time to commit to memory, and they don't require that you have a deep, intimate understanding of the problem you're dealing with. And that's probably why we use it so much you know, early in our medical training, right, in med school. But you can see it's, that's very different from a diagnostic schema, right? A proper diagnostic schema, it's a systematic approach to thinking about a clinical problem in a meaningful way. It's not simply a method of remembering things easily. And that's exactly why when I hear someone using a very clever diagnostic schema that explores a problem space in a way that I never ever thought of before, they instantly gain so much respect from me. That immediately tells me that this person's fundamental knowledge in this particular subject is, well, not surprisingly, much deeper than mine. My next question for you is, in this specific scenario, when I hear someone on teaching rounds use a mnemonic to recall a list of causes for a clinical problem without systematically thinking through it, should I discourage or encourage their use? Are mnemonics a natural step in learning? Or should I prompt them to start thinking about a clinical problem in a different way? You know, I, I think it depends, right? I definitely don't think we should be just categorically discouraging mnemonic use as part of the learning process, right? That doesn't make any sense any more than I would 
I don't know, yell at my four-year-old for using training wheels on his bike. Actually, just to use the analogy, I might even encourage him to do those things, right? To, to let him find some early success that he couldn't have otherwise. But what happens later, right? Well, you know, if he grows up and biking doesn't interest him, it doesn't matter. But it's dangerous if he does want to bike, if he wants to bike to work every day, and he never learns how to bike without training wheels. And I think that that is the source of my unease with Nanonics, right? Is when you first are trying to learn how to navigate a new problem that's totally unfamiliar to you, the large amount of information, Nanonics are useful. And honestly, for a clinical problem that we encounter infrequently or that we don't necessarily need to achieve mastery in, that might be enough. A simple mnemonic might be enough. But it's easy or too easy to get comfortable with mnemonics. I mean, if we rely on mnemonics too much and fail to rethink, relearn, re-examine a specific clinical topic and develop a deeper, intimate knowledge about it, well, if something limits my growth, an A can become a crutch. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think too. And so... To get back to your question, I, I think when I see, you know, my intern or student rely on a mnemonic like NAACP, you know, for eosinophilia, yeah, I think first and foremost, it's a sign, right? It's telling me something about the way in which, you know, their knowledge about that problem is organized in their head. And I need to decide if I think eosinophilia is a topic they need to master, right? It means that at that point I have to step in. I have to help them recognize the need to develop a deeper understanding of the material. And that might be pointing out to them the inadequacy of the mnemonic, you know, as Dr. V did, or helping them distinguish which of their mnemonics that they use have the potential to be the nuclei of mature schema, helpful schema, versus those that are just, you know, destined to become textbook fodder. All right. Um, I think we digressed enough on the topic of mnemonics, all because Dr. Viswanathan said NWACP out loud once. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's come back to this case. So, Dr. Viswanathan went through a long list of possible causes in his mind, and at this point, he's basically thinking two broad things parasitic infections versus malignancy. He also ordered HIV serology, a hepatic panel, ESRCRP. He asked me whether stool was sent for culture, ovaparasite, and GI pathogen PCR. He also asked for abdominal imaging. Well, before we give you all that data, I forced him to only choose one single test with the highest diagnostic value. You know the question that they ask on CPC all the time, and I get angry Every time I see it, why do I have to choose just one test? Anyways, to my surprise, he asked for an abdominal imaging to pursue lab focal abdominal pain further. Parasites and malignancy are the two things that somewhat scream at me, but no diarrhea. But then this whitish streak, which to me seems a little bit of a red herring, per se. And if you look at the the countries this guy went to, like France, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Canada, it's like, it's not, I'm not thinking he was going barefoot and then like some worm went up to his feet. So it's interesting, when I think about this six weeks of dry cough, you think of something pulmonary related. Uh, You have this three weeks of abdominal pain that seems a little more focal. 
and two weeks of fever. Is there inflammation that's going on in like the left abdominal side that's maybe causing some inflammation and sort of pleuritic pain or just trying to tie together the dry cough and the abdominal pain? I would say my impression now is that it's likely that there's there's a process that's more pronounced in the abdomen. In choosing my diagnostic testing, I want to maximize sort of the yield of each test. So I think, you know, abdominal imaging would be my go-to first. So if you remember at the beginning of the discussion, Dr. V was leaning heavily toward infection, and he seemed to be sufficiently intrigued by the eosinophilia, as you can see by the long differential. But as the discussion went on, he got more and more interested in the focal abdominal pain. I tried to press him a little bit more, but he refused to comment further and insisted on obtaining the CT first. All right, fine. The abdominal and pelvis CT revealed an 11 by 10 by 15 centimeter left renal mass, mm. most compatible with neoplasm. Ah, uh, Dr. V. Mm. So I asked him one more time about his interest in with that abdominal pain. I, I think I, again, anchored on certain things, uh, certain items like the eosinophilia. I took each piece of data and I thought, how important is this? You know, how important was that, you know, whitish streak? Not so important. <laughs> when we're looking at cases, we're trying to solve a puzzle. Right? So we're putting all the pieces together, and then we're taking each p- bit of information is, how important is this? How, how important is that this patient you know, went to France recently? How important is it that he, um, he lives with two cats? So taking all those bits and pieces of information and thinking about, okay, is this important? No. Or yes and then taking additional information and then reprioritizing everything. So it's, it's almost like a constant inventory that is being removed so that way I can then solidify things. You know, I think in this patient I would be concerned about something in the uh, GI tract specifically that's causing these, this patient's symptoms, the eosinophilia. It is the most interesting data, but it's too vague. The differential for this is too much. So in short, he, he feels that eosinophilia, although it's very exciting and interesting, uh, at this juncture of his diagnostic process, it doesn't help him narrow his differential further. It's time to focus on the abdominal pain. That decision in itself is very interesting, right? I mean, if this case came in as an overnight emission, I definitely would spend the whole teaching rounds talking about that eosinophilia. Who cares about this guy's abdominal pain? Oh, yeah. That's made totally 100%. I mean, it's intellectually exciting, right, when we encounter a, a relatively rare finding, right? Psychologically, that's just how we're built. We're naturally attracted to, and, and we think of rare things as valuable, but it didn't get him all the way there, so he did something that, honestly, I don't think I could have done. He... <laughs> He set the eosinophilia of 17,000 aside, and uh, much respect. (laughs) Well, I didn't catch this on tape, 
But Doctor V also told me later that he thought this case was written in a way to guide him toward parasites. And knowing me, that、oh. made him more cautious and felt the need to not go down that route too early. I see. Hmm. The gamesmanship. <laughs> well,、mm-hmm. you did emphasize the eosinophilia and the travel history, and the tuna. Experienced discussants, they、uh, they can smell a trap.、Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, I actually did not twist the case that much. Remember, we said that the patient presented to an urgent care first, got blood work, and then came in. Well, so when he showed up in the ER, his eosinophilia was already known, and I intentionally kept my HPI very similar to the initial note written by a medical student in the ED who knew about the eosinophilia. And you can tell he or she was thinking, "Oh my God, it's a parasite!" The whole time, right? Because they probed all the ingestion and travel history out of the patient. I wanted to maintain that same framing effect that all providers later were exposed to. I see. So you're saying there's there's a certain realism then to what you did. You tried to tell him the same story that this patient's real life attending must have gotten preconceptions and all. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, obviously, I know the outcome of the case. I looked up the whole course and retrospectively, maybe selectively, put together the case for presentation. But in real life, you can easily encounter a presenter who really wants a theory to be real. They end up presenting the patient's story a little bit differently. Hmm. I this might be a bit of an aside, but I've been thinking a lot lately, Cindy, about how, and maybe this is because I'm biased as an internist, but I feel like I might go so far as to say that storytelling might be the maybe the second most important function, you know,、uh, of a clinician or thing that we do. What's、right? the most important function? Uh oh, God, <laughs> that was a loaded sentence, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll have to think about that. I just know it's not the most important thing. If storytelling was our most important function, we would be bards, <laughs> but we're doctors,、Fine. so it can't be the most important thing. <laughs> what I am trying to say is just, yeah, I mean, like the patient tells you their story, but what you do is you extract data, you know, from that telling. You combine it with the objective data from your tests, and you, you, you construct a new story, right? A new story that's a more consistent story when the Fits what you think is going on, and then when you call a consult, you tell a shortened version of that story, you know, centered around a question. And a lot of our training in residency, right? The writing of HPIs, learning how to craft one-liners, learning how to do nighttime handoffs—it's all about honing our storytelling skills. And、um, every time we hear about a patient, we're hearing someone's version of that story. It's always from someone's perspective. Abstractly, I think the way I think is it's almost like a nice PDA cycle. So it's a continuing evolution of how does this piece of information does it fit into my narrative, and if not, should I actually stop and think about my narrative and then go back and see? Okay, if this isn't the narrative that I think is going on with the patient, then how can I tie this piece of information with everything else? So I'm gonna take this chance to digress again and talk about framing bias, a term that we hear in MMs all the time.、Hmm. And we often define framing bias as the manner in which data is presented can affect decision making. So to an extent, a different storytelling perspective can be a kind of framing. I mean, framing as a psychological phenomenon was first described by the prospect theory. 
The prospect theory describes how people's decision-making behavior is affected by their perspective of loss and gain in gambling. Most of the research in the medical field on framing usually have studies designed in positive or negative terms, like how it was described in the prospect theory originally. Like, was the glass half full or half empty? Do you present a treatment as having a seventy percent cure rate or thirty percent failure rate? And then they study the subject's decision-making behavior as they perceive how the numeral numbers are presented. But when we talk about the framing effect in real life or in MMs, we typically are extrapolating, and we're talking about a broader meaning that the manner in which data or the narrative is presented can affect our perception of the case. When used in this broad, abstract term, it's quite difficult to measure how prevalent or pervasive framing bias is in our everyday clinical life. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. At the end of the day, if we say all our cases are being presented to us by someone and all our stories have a high potential to be framed, well, that just made me so sad and depressed. Well, I know if I ignore everything my med students and interns and residents tell me and I go straight to the source and only gather data from my patient, then I should be okay, right? <laughs> I mean, your objective is my subjective, Cindy. <laughs> if you want to take care of the patient yourself, that's fine. Uh, but I, there's, I think I have another objection here. Um, let me just ask you this question. Do you think that this patient actually came in and volunteered they did a white streak in his stool. I remember that he, he came in because he was having fever and abdominal pain, right? Those were his chief complaints. Or do you think it's more likely that this white streak in the stool became such a prominent feature of his story after he was interviewed by one and two and five and too many providers who all knew that he had that eosinophilia of 17,000, right? Hmm. Yeah, I did wonder that when I put together the case. Well, like you said, the patient is the original storyteller. And in the past episodes, we talked about reasons why we should not always take the patient's words at face value. I mean, there are language barriers, cultural differences, health literacy problem, 
for example, it might be very difficult for some patients to distinguish between chest pain versus chest pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, agreed. And don't forget the factor of repeat interviews, right? As patients get interviewed over and over again, as they get re-exposed to, to us, to the healthcare setting, their stories change, right? They start to incorporate our vocabulary. A patient with prolonged chest pain that comes habitually every month for an ACS rule out, on their first visit, they probably did not start out calling their pain substernal and crushing and exertional in nine out of 10. But as I meet somebody who's been in the chest pain unit 14 times, I am cognizant that what I am hearing now is no longer their original experience, their original perception. It's not their words. I'm starting to hear the words of all the doctors who have taken care of this patient before. Psychologists have done a lot of studies on this topic on memory recall, mainly in the legal setting in terms of accuracy of eyewitness testimony. You know that question your patients always ask you when you meet them for the first time in the morning after they were admitted? The first question they ask me? Mm -hmm. You're a doctor? (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm all better now, can I go home? Ooh, I wish. Um, No, it's more like, I answer all these same questions six times already. Don't you doctors talk to each other? Yeah, yeah, I get that. Well, it turned out the system is set out this way for a reason. Psychologists who study memory recall learned that repeat interviews aid memory retention and retrieval. And some factual details actually only surface after repeat interviews. But... At the same time, there are so many factors embedded in those interviews can also distort accuracy of memory recall. The duration of those interviews, the form of the questions used in those interviews, the number of people being interviewed together, their age, their confidence level, and so many other elements. It's not uncommon that information can be distorted or even created without the interviewees knowing that. So when you were reviewing that literature, Cindy, did they talk about solutions or, or anything like that? I mean, repeat interviews are just, they're a fact of the way we practice medicine, right? So is there some way to maximize the benefits and minimize the distortions that are introduced by this practice? Well, we know we probably need to standardize our questions and conduct objective interviews to keep the side effects of repeat interviews to a minimum. But how do we counter these side effects? I actually don't know if I found an answer in my research, especially not in the medical field. For now, we'll say that it exists, be aware of it, and be aware of the fact that being aware may or may not help you avoid the problems. Oh, jeez. All right, so back to the case. So what do we have at this point? You're saying the patient has a giant mass arising from the kidney. It's probably a solid tumor, and this is what's causing the pain and the irritation and the fever and the eosinophilia. Everything fits, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Case solved? Well, not yet for Dr. them. After betting money on malignancy and seeing a giant mass on the CT scan, he turned around and asked me for a thorough infectious workup, including a full parasitic panel and an ID consult. I don't think I'm satisfied. And, you know, again, why is this guy having fevers? 
is there an infectious source that I haven't thought about? I think we try to aim to tie everything to one process. However, in reality, we oftentimes see patients with simultaneous parallel processes that just intersect at this time. And we actually see this all the time. We see patients coming to the hospital and they have incidentally diagnosed malignancy because they came in for pneumonia. So I think, you know, looking at him initially with that leukemoid reaction sort of white count, with the high white count, fever, tachycardia, it's not something I want to just say, oh, it's definitely this large mass that doesn't look infectious at all. Looks like it may just be this nice mass that's not bothering anyone. And I don't think we've really had a satisfying answer about what this fever is. So I wouldn't feel comfortable about initiating any treatment until a thorough infectious workup was done. Hmm. So about this patient, Cindy, what, um, what happened in the end? So in real life, a GU oncologist was consulted, and he thought this could be renal cell carcinoma. He requested a thorough ID workup for the same reason Dr. V suggested, that this patient fulfill sepsis criteria, and the oncologist would love to rule out all other causes before he commits the patient to possible post-op chemotherapy. HIV, blood parasite, OMP, schistosomiasis, and a lot of parasites I cannot even pronounce were tested. And like the rest of the infectious workup, they all came back negative. Ultimately, the mass was surgically resetted. The path returned as benign sarcoma. Stains for fungal and AFB were all negative. By post-op day 5, the patient was completely febrile and the eosinophilia resolved. Piscov actually also resolved, and it was thought to be from diaphragmatic irritation. He was discharged home good as new. Hang on. I, man, I would have bet money it would, would have been RCC. So benign sarcomas? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's rare. It's case reportable, but it can cause a high eosinophilia like this. Wow. Case reportable, huh? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I try to find hoopy cases, <laughs> not zebra cases, so it doesn't really fit the name of our segment here. And the eosinophilia was gone by day five? Yeah, um, the eosinophil count really plummeted post-op, and by day five, I believe it was in the range of 600 or so. Then the mechanism, do we know anything about that? Um, I try my best to read up on it. Um, To be honest, uh, there are a lot of theories on tumor-mediated pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. All right, listeners, that uh, that should just about do it for this episode. As always, uh, let us know what you think. And remember, if you have a case you'd like to submit for discussion, or someone you'd like to come on and hear as a discussant, or if you're interested in developing and hosting an episode, please get in touch with us. Visit our website at www.coreimpodcast.com or send us an email at hello at coreimpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at coreimpodcast. 
And of course, thank you to Dr. Anand Viswathanan as our discussants and Dr. Pawan Punjabi for submitting this case, as well as Drs. Amy O, Shreya Trivedi, Marty Freed. A special thanks to our audio editors, Salone Kelleher and Harit Shah, along with our other core AM colleagues. And an honorable mention, as always, to Dr. Stephen Liu. Dr. Fang and I are general internists and faculty with the NYU School of Medicine. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining us. With Core IM, I'm John Huang. And I'm Cindy Fain. See you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.